The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. If you have your Bibles, would you join me? Philippians chapter 4. We continue our study through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. We come to the final chapter this morning. Together we're going to look at the first four verses. Would you read with with me down to verse 7? Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and Synthache to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone when the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we come to the final chapter of Philippians. We come to Paul's final appeals to the church at Philippi. What remains in these 23 verses is very practical. Paul is really driving down on some practical issues within their specific context here at this church. These uh, practical Instructions from the Apostle Paul uh, really follow some very lofty doctrinal statements in this letter. This is, by and large, an incredibly practical letter, but there are um, some, some really uh, lofty doctrine at view. I, I think back to Philippians chapter 2, as uh, the Apostle Paul sort of breaks down the the humanity of Jesus Christ in His humiliation, um, His, his uh, eternal uh, existence with the Father, coming in flesh, humbling Himself. Those are, those are very uh, high theologies. Think about the, the immediate context here as Paul has just encouraged the church and reminded them of the promise of a bodily resurrection to glory. That's, that's high doctrine. That's high theology. But we must never forget that there is always a direct line from the loftiest doctrine to the lowliest duty. A right biblical theology should always, in every case, produce a godly character in our living, always. And this is seen throughout this epistle, but it's especially seen here in these verses. 
where we see this morning four expressions of love and three exhortations for living. Four expressions of love from the Apostle Paul for the, to the church there at Philippi. And then three exhortations for their living. What we see in these verses that sort of bring to an end uh, Paul's letter to this church is his deep love and care for these people. We see on display Paul's pastoral heart. The Apostle Paul is a, a, a triumphant intellect. He is, in, in many respects, a genius. He has a, an, an ability to, to reason and to argue, uh, in, in the good sense, argue, to, to make an argument, not, you know, fight with people, but to, to offer an argument and, and a reason understanding for the conclusions that he gets to. Uh, he has a way with, with language um, that, that really is, is unseen in so many other ancient uh, writings. He is a genius. Yet, he's also a, a pastor. He's not just an intellect. He's not just a, you know, a, a, a lofty professor in an ivory tower. He's a shepherd. And he deeply loves these people at the church Philippi. And we see that in these verses, these four expressions of love. But it's helpful for us to remember that the point isn't just to see how the Apostle Paul cared for these people. The point is that he serves for us as a model for our own personal relationships and affections for the people within our local church. Remember what the Apostle Paul has just said. Brothers, join in imitating me. Join in imitating me. Imitating me how? Well, in imitating me as he strains towards this goal of perfection. That's, that's chapter 3. But also, may we join with the Apostle Paul in imitating his love for the people of the local church. And so as we look at this first verse in particular, I think it's an important reminder for us. And it's a good reminder for me that God is calling us to have this same level of affection for one another that the Apostle Paul has for the church here in Philippi. Four expressions of love in just the first verse. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Four expressions of love. The first one that we see is this term of my brothers. Therefore, my brothers. Therefore is, is there to draw the connection from what has 
come before, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Because of this, my brothers, Paul says, this is a a term of familial bond. And there is a familial bond, a family-like bond that exists within the body of believers, within uh, uh, the, the larger church and also the local church. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, Paul says, Paul has a family-like affection for these people. He sees them as his brothers and his sisters. In the broadest sense, this comes from the understanding of our adoption into the family of God. We see this truth from the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, where he writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In the broadest sense, we are all brothers and sisters because we have all been adopted by faith if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, adopted into His family. Not illegitimate children, but... Full heirs, Paul says. Full heirs, full sons and daughters with the very Spirit of God in our hearts causing us to cry out to God as Father. We are, by faith, children of God. And if you are God's child and I am God's child, then we are, by faith, brothers and sisters. We are united together in His family. That's the the broadest sense of the understanding of of brothers and sisters. But I do think in in the context here that what Paul has in view when he says, my brothers, is more than just this understanding that you've been adopted into the family of God and I've been adopted into the family of God, therefore we're brothers and sisters. I think it goes beyond simply the theological understanding of this doctrine of adoption. And it goes even further into Paul's deep affection for them. It's more than just an understanding that they've been adopted both into the family of God. And it moves to the deeper level of a bond of a brother and a sister. God blessed me with a brother. We did not get along when I was young. He is very different than I am. I am very different than he is. He was inside, artistic, musical. I was outside, you know, rough, 
playing sports and shooting things. We were just uh, opposites in so many ways. But as we've gotten older and had kids of our own and got some life behind us and realized that there's a whole lot more in common between us than there is apart. He, he is my closest friend. He is who I would call if I needed something. I am who he would call if he needed something. No matter what, we'd drop whatever we're doing and we would be there for each other. Our, our relationship has gone beyond simply we both are the offspring of the same two people to now a deep brotherly bond and affection for each other that is deeper than our affection for somebody else. I think that's what Paul has in view here. There's a, a deep personal affection, a familial bond that goes beyond the, the theology of adoption and into this, this deep experience that they've had together here in Philippi as they've shared their life together. The Apostle Paul knows these people. He calls them by name. He knows these people. He loves these people. He's shared his life with these people. This is the language that Paul uses to describe them. Look at what he says. My brothers, whom I love and whom I long for. This is far beyond just a a theological understanding of adoption within the family of God. He loves them deeply and he says he longs for them. This is the only place in all the New Testament that this word is used. His heart's desire is to be back with them, not just so that he's out of this imprisonment in Rome, but because of the deep care that he has for these people. What an expression of love when Paul says, my brothers and sisters. Leads me to ask this question, have you, have you opened yourself up to that level of relationship within the family of God? Have you opened yourself up to that level of relationship within the family of God? See, that's going to be the question that we get on each of these. Or is the church just a place you come on a Sunday morning and are these people just people that you pass along the way and share a hello, how you doing, good to see you? Have you closed your heart off to people within the family of God, or have you opened yourself up to have this level of familial bond? Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and whom I long for, the second of expression of love is my joy. My joy. Paul calls them his joy. This is, by most accounts, 
the epistle of joy, where Paul writes a, a lot about joy, but here he tells them that they are his joy. The Apostle Paul finds joy in these people. They're not a perfect people. Now, granted, they're not the church at Corinth, but they're not a perfect people. I mean, there's, there's division among them. Can I address that in verse 2? There's those there who seek to hurt him. And they're not perfect, but yet Paul says of them, You are my joy. I find my joy. In you. Is there any greater thing to say of a person than that? You bring me joy. You are my joy. This church is not a burden to him, it is not an exercise of drudgery to serve them, but one of delight. They bring joy to his heart. Joy is is not happiness. Joy goes beyond happiness. Happiness is circumstantial. Joy is not. Joy is at a, a deeper level. There's a deeper love and care and devotion to one another to where being with them in their presence lifts His spirits because then Him, He finds joy do we say that of one another? To be with you. To see you. To spend time with you. Is a joy. It's a joy. It's not drudgery. It's delight. It's delight. Paul goes on, thirdly, to call them... My crown, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and crown. My joy and crown. This means that he sees this church as his greatest honor. They are his greatest honor. This word used here for crown does not refer to a royal crown. But instead, it refers to a, a, a laurel wreath. A, a, you, you've, you've seen them. You've seen them displayed in art or imagery. A, a wreath of leaves placed on a head. A laurel crown. It, it traces its, its root back to the reward given to the winners of an athletic event. They were given a crown. It was a symbol of their honor, of their triumph. This is the language used in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. That's a a laurel wreath, but we an imperishable one. This crown is the athlete's trophy given to them in honor of 
their achievement. Paul says of these people that his greatest honor in life is them. It's them. It's knowing them. It's serving them. It's loving them. They are His honor. They are His joy and His crown. These two phrases are tied together. My joy and my crown. And it it brings forward this imagery of the anticipation of a victory celebration such as one you would see at the end of the Olympic Games where the athletes would be given their crown and there would be exuberant joy and celebration of all that has happened. It's the the kind of experience when you've labored side by side with another and what you've practiced for, what you've trained for, what you've sweat for, what you've bled for, what you've sacrificed for is over. And victory is tasted. And now you rejoice together in exceeding joy and honor. This is the way Paul sees this church. They're his brothers and sisters. They're his joy. They're his crown. They're his honor. They're His beloved. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown stand firm thus in the Lord. My beloved, Paul loves them. Paul loves them. This this word here, my beloved, is the adjective form of the richest, deepest, strongest Greek word for love. It's not not the the noun form, it's the adjective form. It's the description. You are, for me, the greatest, deepest, richest expression of love. You are my beloved. All four of these terms, incredibly personal to the Apostle Paul. You're my brothers, you're my joy, you're my crown. You're my beloved. Do you feel this way about your fellow brothers and sisters within the family of faith? Church, the reality is, is that here, within our relationships, should be the deepest levels of friendships and partnerships and love and care. Have you opened your heart to that? Or have you closed yourself off to it? Now I realize that opening yourself up to other people this this way is a scary thing. And that hurt is real, especially hurt within the church where there are those who you at one time trusted and then experienced a a deep level of of hurt. Most people don't join one church for life. They're there till they move or they're there till they're hurt. And so what, what that means is, is that when 
people come to a new place, they're, they're coming with whole loads of hurts, whole loads of baggage. And what that can cause is for us to close ourselves off to say, not again. Not again. And I understand that. I've lived that. Trust me, there's lots of hurt that I've experienced in this church. But God calls us to live differently. God calls us to open up ourselves and to trust Him in it. And to ask His Spirit to come and to work and to develop deep ties with one another. Now, how do we do that? I think the key to that comes in the previous verses. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that we considered equality with... He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself taking the form of man, being found in human likeness. He humbled himself even to the point of death, death on the cross. We're called to have that sort of self-sacrificing, humble attitude one towards another. I think if we live that way, then the potentiality of, of hurt doesn't disappear altogether, but it is greatly diminished. It's greatly diminished. Paul has deep love and affection for these people. And his call to us, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is to imitate Him. So my encouragement to you today is if you've closed yourself off because of hurts in the past, those things are real. We acknowledge them. But may the Spirit of God come and do a work in you to open your heart up to one another. To trust Him and His goodness. Four expressions of love and three exhortations for living. Three exhortations, three encouragements for living, Paul gives. The first one is one that we've seen before, and that is to stand firm in the Lord. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. We've seen this plea from the Apostle Paul already. And it shouldn't be a surprise to you where we find it. But we find it in what I come back to every week, it seems, as the key verse in the entire epistle. And that is Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for faith, for the faith of the gospel. Paul's encouragement to this church is to stand firm in the Lord. The church at Philippi was under immense pressure. Immense pressure. 
more pressure than we have to stand firm for the sake of the gospel. They were under state-sanctioned governmental pressure. Pressure to give their allegiance not to Christ, but to Rome. They would experience, and they are experiencing, levels of persecution that we could never imagine. Countless martyrs, their lives given, fed to lions, dipped in pitch and set on fire because of their allegiance to Christ Jesus. They were under immense pressure from the government. They were under immense pressure from the culture. They were under immense pressure to cave on their Christian convictions and to see Rome as their highest authority and their greatest allegiance. But Paul exhorts them to stand firm as citizens of heaven. That together they are a community of exiles who are to remain steadfast in their loyalty and their obedience to Jesus Christ above all others. They were to stand firm against the dangers from the outside. They were also to stand firm against the dangers from the inside. Dangers from who the Apostle Paul calls the enemies of the cross. Those false teachers who are teaching false doctrine, adding to the gospel. To not give in to false teachers, to not give in to false doctrine. They were to stand firm, to not be moved. This is the language of spiritual warfare. You stand firm. Brothers and sisters, the same dangers are true for us as well. We are under pressure to move. We are under pressure to give in. We are under pressure to swear our allegiance to another. We are under pressure to give in on biblical imperatives and sound doctrine. We must stand firm. The community of faith exists to equip one another to be able to stand firm in the gospel. Listen to what Paul told the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4. And he gave them apostles, the, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. To do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. 
But rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the imagery of God and His grace giving to the church apostles and teachers and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and so that they can equip the saints to do the work of the ministry so that together the local church can grow up out of infancy in their faith into mature manhood, into the image of Christ so that they could stand firm and not be tossed to and fro by every wind, by the craftiness and the cunning that's around us. Church, we must be characterized by a spiritual steadfastness. We must not be easily moved. Paul tells them how they are to stand firm. Stand firm thus in the Lord. That our standing firm is not in our own strength. It's not in our own might. It's not in our own abilities, in our own intellects, in the depth of our own understanding or knowledge. Our standing firm must be in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the rock on which we stand. And it's a helpful reminder of exactly who He is. He is the eternal God. He is the one from whom everything that was created came out of His mouth. He is the everlasting one. He is the rock of ages. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the King of Kings. He is all of these lofty, glorious descriptions. And those can at times seem far away and removed from us. But He is also the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.1. 1, 1. John 1.14 1, unveils to us who this Word is. And the Word became flesh, and He made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory, the glory, the one and only that comes from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Word. And to stand firm in the Lord means to stand firm in the Word of God. Trusting it, leaning on it. Stand firm in the Lord. That's the first exhortation. The second one is to agree in the Lord. Verse 2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Synthache to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, we don't know who that is, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement. We don't know a lot about him either. 
and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. We don't know all the circumstances here. But there is a serious disagreement over something that's happening in the church at Philippi and it's centered around these two ladies. We don't know the disagreement. But we, we do know that it's, it's real. It's just a helpful reminder to us that this is a letter written to real people in a real place at a real time in a real church with real circumstances, real emotions, real feelings, real history. These are really two women who seem to have had a disagreement and they got one side and they got the other. And there is disunity in the church. And so Paul writes to them to encourage them to stop it. Stop it. What does he say? He says, agree in the Lord. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Synthike to agree in the Lord. I like how he, he, he makes sure he's not taking sides here. I entreat you and I entreat you. Exact same. I'm not taking sides here. You two agree in the Lord. I want you to notice something here. Paul isn't telling them to find their agreement in every opinion, is he? I mean, there seems to be some, some pretty serious differences in opinion between these two ladies. And Paul's instruction to them isn't to agree in everything you think or agree in every opinion you have or agree in your every understanding. That's not Paul's instruction. What's Paul's instruction? Paul's instruction is to agree in the Lord. Find your agreement in Jesus. Euodia, Synthike, Stop it, because you two are sisters in Christ. You, Euodia, you're in Jesus Christ. You, Synthike, you're in Jesus Christ. You're both in the same place. Now act like it. Agree in Jesus. Find your agreement in Him. In other words, be of the same mind... We've, we've seen that over and over again. By the way, that's chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or in absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Have one mind among you two. And Euodia, it's not your mind. And Synthike, it's not your mind. I'm not saying you're right, and I'm not saying you're right. The mind that you two are to have is the mind of Christ. I have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Find your place of agreement in Jesus Christ. What does that look like? Well, it looks like 
Philippians chapter 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility counting others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's what it looks like to agree in the Lord. There are some who think that when we have conversations like this, that what we mean is that the church is called to be a whole bunch of robots. That we're called to all think exactly the same. And all have the exact same opinions on everything. Now, I wish we did. I wish all of you had my opinions. <laughs> now, the reason why they're my opinions is because I think they're right. I would be insane to hold an opinion that I didn't think was right. Makes sense. But we have to have the mind of Christ in us that says there's a humility that says maybe there's some validity to how another one sees or understands something. I'm, I'm not talking about the majors here. There's some things where there, there is no variation. There is no room for disagreement. There's some core doctrines. There's, you stand in firm. But on opinions, agree in the Lord. The church isn't called to be a bunch of robots who have all the exact same opinions on every single issue. The church is called to be a gathering of humble people who find their agreement in having the same mind as Jesus Christ. Do you have the mind of Christ relationally among one another? Do we find our agreements in the Lord? Are we marked by self Denying, self-sacrificing agreement in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. And then thirdly, rejoice in the Lord. Probably the second most famous verse in all the Bible. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Paul exhorts the church simply to rejoice, to be filled with joy, to overflow with thanksgiving. Now, where are they to rejoice? They are to rejoice in the Lord, not in their circumstances. Circumstances change. If our rejoicing is in our circumstances, then we're like a ship tossed to and fro in the sea. Circumstances change. God never changes. Where are we to rejoice? Our rejoicing, our joy must be in the Lord. Here's the reality. The more deeply we know Him, the more we know, the better we know that He is unchangeable. He is eternal. And no matter the circumstances, we can rejoice. Where are we to rejoice? In the Lord. When are we to rejoice? 
always. Because no matter what, Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Four expressions of love. My brothers, my joy, my crown, my beloved. Three exhortations for living. Stand firm in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Well, how do we do this? And as I thought about that, my mind went to what I believe is the key to how we live this way. And that is through our identity. I think what Paul has in view here is where you and where I find our identity. What is the source of your identity? Put that another way. From where do you garner your understanding of yourself, of who you are? We have for a, a little while now, and it's, it's ramping up even more and more, experienced a shift in culture, in the terms of the sources for identity. Throughout history, your source from, for your identity came from the, the outside. It came primarily from, from two places. It came from your family and it came from your community. That's like all of history. I'll give you an example, just an easy example to, to, to understand and to wrap your, your head around. Imagine you live in uh, you know, London, England in 1724. And your son, your father is a blacksmith. And daughter, your, your mother is a seamstress. What are you going to be? Son, you're going to be a blacksmith. And daughter, you're going to be a seamstress. Like your identity, who you are, who you understand yourself to be is formed by your immediate family and your place in the broader community. Does that make sense? That's sort of history. There's been a shift now in post-modernity and post-modern ways of, of thinking to where now the thought is that who you are, your identity, how you see yourself and your place in this world doesn't come from the outside. It doesn't come from your family and it doesn't come from your community, but instead it comes from 
inside yourself, whoever you are on the inside, whoever you see yourself to be, then that's who you are. You have to be your true self. And you don't want these outside influences sort of influencing who you are. You determine who you are and then you live that out. That's sort of post-modernity. Though I would argue that that whole way of, of, of thinking is really dishonest. Because as much as we want to say our identity is only formed by who we are in the inside, the reality tells us something totally different. The reality says you are still influenced by outside pressures. That's why you, you sort of slowly or quickly become who you hang out with as a kid, right? You know why that's the case? Because the Bible says so. Those who walk with the wise grow wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. The Bible speaks to everything. I, I think that's seen in the, in the incredible skyrocketing of um, the abandonment of uh, historic orthodox sexual morals and the increasing rate, the, the absolute insane multiplication of the number of, of people who would identify, that's the language, as transgender or on some Spectrum. Now, some would say, well, it's always been that way, but they didn't have the freedom to do that. They had the freedom now, and so that's, that's why. Uh, I, outside pressures always influence who you see yourself to be, even if you think you're just being who you are on the inside. It's just reality. So what we see here really is identity in view in who we see ourselves to be from two distinctively Christian sources. This is sort of what sets us apart when it comes to identity. In the, in the first of Paul's four expressions of love, they all center around the church and his care for them. You cannot feel about other believers the way Paul feels about other believers unless you find the covenant community of believers to be a source for your identity. Not, not the only source, but a source. The fact that because of the grace of God, you are now a member of the people of God. 
You are now a part of a larger community with shared beliefs and values, a shared system of morality, a shared ethic, a shared and common practice, and a shared and common creed, all under a shared and common God and a singular view and understanding of a singular God who is alive and in control. Those things should shape who you see yourself to be. I'm a member of a larger community. And it's a community that transcends ethnicities and nationalities. It's a community that transcends politics and geographies. And my place in the people of God should inform my identity in how I see myself. I am a part of the people of God. And my interaction with them works by by the Spirit of God to inform who I am. And within the community, there is a common identity. Here's the the remarkable thing about, the distinctively Christian thing about this, because some would say, well, that's true in any community. Jason, it sounds to me like you're just trying to take us back to the 1700s. There's something distinctive about the Christian community. What's distinctive about the Christian community is we not only have one shared identity, but we have two shared identities. The first shared identity is that we were all, every one of us, enemies of God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, dead in our sins and trespasses. All of us, vessels of wrath. All of us, under the righteous judgment of God. That's one shared identity. But in the community of faith, there is also another shared identity. And that is that by faith, we are now not enemies of God, but adopted sons and daughters of God. We're no longer vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, but we're vessels of glory. Now, together we are new creations. There's a common shared identity of being new creations. We all share together that we were once outsiders who have now become insiders within the worshiping community. And where our allegiances were once different, now they are the same. Yes, we are individuals, but together we are one body and share one covenant together. Until we understand this, we cannot love one another the way that Paul does. Unless we see our identity as a part of the common community of confessing covenant Christians. This must be a core part of your life, of who you are and who you see yourself to be. Your identity is formed within a covenant community. And it's, it's, it's uniquely Christian. It's, it's wrapped around 
grace. The second thing is, is that what Paul has in, in, in view here is, I know we're running low and I so wanted to preach Colossians 3 this morning, um, is that your identity is not just found in the, in the covenant community, but your identity is found in Christ Jesus. What, what was the refrain, the three refrains that were repeated in these exhortations? In the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord. What that means is that who you know yourself to be must be understood in light of who you are now connected with. Now, Christ is in you. Now, Christ Jesus is your life. It's not just theological talk here. That's intensely practical identity, how you see yourself. Christ Jesus is your life. The absolute best place, I believe, in the scripture that illustrates what it means to find your identity both in Christ and in the covenant community is found in Colossians chapter 3. I'll just read it in closing. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That's identity. Because that's, of, that's who you are. Then put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's identity. Here, where? Here in the covenant community of people. Here there is no Greek or Jew. Circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. That's the covenant community. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. To experience the depths of the expressions of love that Paul has for the church. And to live out these exhortations for living. You have to understand who you are in light of the grace of God that's found in Jesus Christ and the covenant community of Christians together. Father, would you help us understand rightly who we are? That our understanding of ourselves wouldn't be driven by our emotions for the day. It wouldn't be driven by a culture that says these things are right or these things are acceptable or these things are common. But that our understanding of ourselves would be found first and foremost in Jesus Christ. That we are found in Him. And that when He appears, we will appear with Him because He is our life. So would you help us find our identity first and foremost in Jesus? And then secondly, would you help us foster an identity within a covenant community of confessing Christians? Where we in humility and like-mindedness, love and care and serve one another in humility, self-sacrificing, putting on the mind of Christ, which is ours in Christ Jesus, so that we could experience the depth of these four expressions of love and so that we could rightly live out these three express or these three exhortations for living in Jesus name we pray amen thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series to find our gathering location and more sermons visit christcentralchurch.net